if I'm honest, I'm even guilty of it. We get so focused on precision and optimal and all of this that we forget if it even if it's not optimal, you're still going to be okay, right? Yeah. It's 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 not like a life and death situation. Now, you'll think clearer, you might enjoy the trip a little more, it might be less exhaustion, but there's also, you know, something to be said for that mental that mental clarity of blowing your own mind about what you're able to do and you just think man that's gonna be really hard then you do it welcome back to the valley to peak nutrition podcast this week i'm joined by a gentleman named james nash some of you might know james but if you don't james has what most of us would probably consider their dream job he gets paid to spend time in the outdoors and he gets paid to represent companies that many of us have come to know and trust in our own outdoor pursuits and he's earned this for good reason he's got a deep knowledge of the outdoors and he shares that with other folks but that also means that he tends to spend a lot of time on the road with a pretty irregular schedule which can also present a number of challenges especially if you have specific goals tied to your nutrition and your different pursuits so we talk about these travels and the challenges that come with them and, and how to navigate those and in addition to his role in the outdoors he and his family have a gorgeous ranch in eastern oregon so naturally we talk about that we talk about grass versus grain-fed beef is there a difference and other topics that you might find helpful just in that same arena we talked about his wild 50 mile adventure that he had in the mountains of oregon where he took no food uh, and he's just a fascinating guy who has a load of helpful information to share in this episode that I think really anyone who listens will will find benefit from. Finally, I'll make a selfish request. If you do enjoy the podcast, would you mind sharing it with somebody else or even leaving us a review uh, once you finish up with it? So without further ado, James Nash on nutrition with crazy schedules, grass and grain fed beef and tackling the backcountry with no food. I would love to hear, like, if you don't mind, just starting by introducing yourself, kind of even reiterating what you just said, and then we'll jump in a little bit to some of the some of the challenges that exist with. And then I've got a, a little surprise for you, which I think you're going to be you're going to enjoy, actually. Awesome. Um, yeah. So I'm I'm James Nash. I own Six Ranch Outfitters. I live here on the Six Ranch, and I have the Six Ranch podcast. If you guys are starting. to get the general thrust of that, um, that little corporation. Um, I am a fifth generation cattle rancher here, here on the sixth ranch. I, I grew up in this area and went to, you know, all, all school here, except that I went to Norway for a year in high school. I went to college in Montana, got a degree in literature and writing. And then I went into the Marine Corps and commissioned as an officer served for five years as a tank officer i was medically retired after uh getting a little banged up in afghanistan and then came home and started guiding again guiding something that i've done since i was 14 years old so it was um, a natural thing for me to to get back into especially since i was still hurt pretty badly and um couldn't do the the heavy lifting here on the ranch and then, uh, th yeah, then I started my own outfitting business and that grew really quickly. And now I do ambassador work for a bunch of different brands. I continue guiding. I do a lot of work to support veterans, um, helping them get out to hunt and fish, not just veterans, but all, all kinds of people, but veterans are definitely nearer and dearer to my heart than most. 
and I travel a ton for work. So I'm hunting all over the country uh, just about every year. Uh, this year I'll hunt in at least eight states, if not more, and I'll be on the road filming um, filming those hunts or having those hunts filmed for at least 45 days for just one of those hunting projects. And in addition to that, I'm traveling to, to shows, events, and competitions. And yeah, like you said, being on the road uh, can lead to some incredibly unhealthy behavior. And the nature of events is that you are seeing people that you might only see once a year who are good friends. And that leads to late nights, to lots of drinking, almost always out at restaurants. Um, you know, you are rarely stepping foot inside of a grocery store. Uh, you don't have access to, to anything to cook your own meals. Water seems to be a really hard thing to find. And yeah, it, it's just really easy to get sucked into a routine of like an early morning coffee, a trashy breakfast in a, in a hotel and then, you know, working all day long and then going straight out to drinks and dinner afterwards. Um, people can often gain 20 or 30 pounds during show season. And then you step back into a regular hunting season, like spring bear, spring Turkey. And it's like, Oh my God, what happened to me? You know, last fall I was in such good shape. And then here I am. Uh, so our introduction came from, from me reaching out and looking for advice on how to manage all of this, um, because those types of, of seasonal fluctuations, I could tell were, were unhealthy and counterproductive and, you know, I didn't feel good and, and I needed help. I mean, do you feel like, I, I think I, I think I know the answer to this, but I'll never want to assume, do you. Do you feel like you see guys do that well? Like guys who do have a similar life to you, meaning they travel quite a bit for work, they're ambassadors for a lot. And within that, and even like even the marketing realm, even guys who maybe aren't ambassadors for certain brands, anyone I know who has been in marketing, you know, it's essentially like part marketing, part wine and dine. <laughs> so it just lends itself to a lot of opportunities where you're engaging in these things that like you'd mentioned, kind of develop these, these healthy are these, these, these habits that put you further from where you really want to be for your health. Do you feel like you've ever seen a guy do it well? And I guess an extension of that would be, if so, what do they do that's different? And and where do you think that motivation that they've got to do that comes from? You know, habits are hard, hard to create. Um, and sometimes they can be hard to maintain. But once you've got them, they're certainly easier to maintain than they are to create, whether that's a, a healthy habit or an unhealthy habit. And I do see guys out there that, that do manage it well, guys and gals both. And, you know, when I'm you know, sometimes coming downstairs, uh, trying to, to shake a hangover off and just figure out which part of the hotel has breakfast in it. I see some people that are heading back up to their room that they've spent the last hour and a half in the gym. And those same people will, you know, leave, leave the booth during the day and come back with a big flat of water that they hunted up someplace. And, you know, they're, they're making sure that they're drinking water and they're making healthier choices at restaurants but like you said, uh, there's a wine and dine aspect of this. And 
the great thing about the brands that I work with is that they treat me extremely well. Sometimes the interpretation of that is trying to send us to like the most decadent restaurants out there and make sure that the food that's served is like above all else tastes really good. And taste isn't necessarily the, the fundamental aspect of, of good nutrition. So yeah, it, it's challenging. I, I think that there's also a, a biological aspect to it. Some people just maintain fitness a little bit better than others. And, and it doesn't seem to hit them as hard when they're keeping the schedule and, and stuff like that. For me, it's a real struggle. It's a, it's a massive struggle. And it's something that I am fighting all the time. And I've tried a lot of things that don't work and, and I've tried some things that do work. None of it, none of it's easy, but it's extremely important. Um, and we look at, we look at our pack and try and cut weight out of it and not, not take stuff that we don't have to. Oftentimes we should be looking at ourselves and the weight that, that we're carrying on our body and, and consider it in the same way. I mean, I, I would never ever hunt with a bowling ball. I just wouldn't do it. Uh, that's, that's too much weight. It's too much space. It, it doesn't help me accomplish anything, but I've oftentimes hunted with a bowling ball or multiple bowling balls of extra weight on my body that I shouldn't be carrying around. They're not helping. They're not contributing in any meaningful way. Um, so it's, it's just a, a take on honesty that, that you have to embrace a little bit from time to time. Yeah. I think you said it. I think you said it so well in the beginning where you said, habits are really hard to form, but once they're formed, they're almost hard to break. And, you know, sure. this could be true of good and bad habits you'd mentioned. And like for, for clarity to anyone that's listening, like certainly the, there's some other things that we're going to talk about in this, but this was something that was, I wanted to talk about for two reasons. One, it's something that comes up all the time, just even within my world. Number two, it's something that I personally struggle to help people with because though like though there are a couple of things that you can certainly help someone understand and educate people on, it's not common math. It's not basic math that people struggle with. It's it's everything else, right? It's the social habits, the creating a habit, the atmosphere, et cetera. You'd mentioned that there were a few things that you tried that had worked. There were a few things that had tried you tried that hadn't worked. Would you mind kind of going over maybe what a couple of each of those are? Um, one of the most effective things for me is if, if I get a break for lunch, say at a trade show or something like that, if I go to a grocery store and buy my food there rather than go to a restaurant or go to, you know, whatever food court is in that area, I'm inevitably going to come away from that with healthier food that tastes better, that makes me feel better and keeps me more effective. And effectiveness is incredibly important to me because I, I want to perform at a really high level. And if I get tired and, and groggy or grumpy at the end of the day, and then somebody comes up and they have questions and, you know, they, they want to talk to me for whatever reason, I want to engage with them in the most meaningful and intelligent way that I can. I, I owe that to that person um, more so than I even owe it to myself to feel good. I owe it to them to, to pr perform at my highest level. And food is a, is a huge part of that. So something that, that has worked for me is just to make the decision to, to go to a grocery store to buy food 
rather than going to a restaurant to, to eat something a little bit faster that somebody else has, has made for me. And I, I think that the, the subtlety there is, is just realizing that you don't have to have hot food. You don't have to have stuff that's, that's cooked and plated in order for it to be nutritious and satisfying. Yeah. Thinking about myself, cause you know, I lost weight a long time ago and wanting to be like, just wanting to be a good steward of what I feel like I've been given, right? Just almost like a renewed chances life. And, and that sounds so dramatic, but when you weigh 270 at 20 years old and you project that out at like 35, knowing what could have been at that trajectory continued versus what I am now, I, I am probably a little, I don't want to say hypervigilant, but I am very keen to be aware of managing what I feel like I've been given. So exactly what you said, three simple things that I've always used when I travel. One of those is exactly what you'd mentioned. I look for either a gas station or a grocery store within walking distance to wherever we're staying at. And it, you know, I'm not going in there and doing your standard grocery shopping. I'm just going in and finding stuff that I know will fit the bill, right? Maybe that's instant oatmeal for some breakfast or even a late night snack. At least it's, you know, something better than nothing. I'll get nuts. I'll get jerky. I'll get fruit. I'll get just these really basic things that can fill in the gaps. Another thing that I do is I try to pack stuff. Like if I, if there's, you know, if I'm going to be traveling somewhere, I'm going to be on a plane, I'll throw in a can of nuts. I'll throw in some, maybe some energy bars. I'll throw in jerky almost always just a couple of standards that I can rely on. And then the third thing, like I'll set a structure for myself because the place that always killed me prior to losing weight was like, it wasn't that my meals were that terrible. I was just eating all the time. So I'll set a structure, like I'll have a breakfast, I'll have a lunch, I'll have a dinner. I, I don't want to say that I'll give no regard to what I have at those meals, but it's anything in between those that I just basically commit to not having anything. I mean, there will be people at events that we go to, especially in the world of nutrition and dietetics that are just passing out food all day long. And for me, just having that structure of really not eating until I'm hungry has always been really helpful. So you had a great point there that reminded me of those three simple things that I've always used. I'm curious too, as a guide, what mistakes you've seen clients make with their nutrition, either coming into a hunt or maybe it's at home preparing for a hunt. Cause I've, I've been <laughs> to where you live. Um, and I've, I've done some, some different activities around there, mostly backpacking with my wife and father-in-law and, and, and it's not easy walking. So I would be curious just kind of from your standpoint perspective of as a guide, what you've seen clients potentially make, what mistakes they've made. Yeah, you're, you're right. This is one of the steepest places in the world. So we go from 10,000 feet to 756 feet in less than 40 miles. And that, that is a, a difficult thing to find um, outside of like portions of the Himalaya. Um, so when you're talking North America, this is it. This is steep and, and steep means you've got to earn it everywhere you go, whether it's side hill, downhill or uphill, none of it's easy. So a mistake that I see a lot of, a lot of hunters make is they don't eat anything when they wake up. Um, there's a plan oftentimes to come back to some kind of rally point where, whether it's a lodge or a camp and have a brunch or something along those lines. 
that does a couple things that uh, that aren't necessarily good. The the first thing is they have a hard time waking up if they don't get something in their system, and it's a lot of early mornings. Right now, you know, we've got turkey season opening in a couple of days. If I were to step out from my house and drive 45 minutes to a place where I'm going to hunt a turkey, be there half an hour before shooting light so that I can be set up and ready to go, I'm leaving here at like 3.30 in the morning. So that's, that's offset my normal schedule by quite a lot. If I don't need anything and I'm planning on just like finding something at 10 or 11, that's an awfully long time to go and be alert and tuned in without having any food at all. So I would like to see my guys uh, eat, eat something for breakfast. There's a lot of uh, mythology out there about scent and people are afraid to, you know, eat any kind of a protein for breakfast. There's some people that actually don't eat meat for the entirety of hunting season because they're afraid of the scent that comes off their body and that they will be perceived as a predator if they eat meat. Some of these people are extremely effective hunters. My take is that with a lot of the animals that I hunt, um, a couple of good examples are bear and elk. They can smell so well, they can detect odorants from such a long distance that I don't think it matters whether you had bacon and eggs or oatmeal. Um, so I think that we can, we can lose some of that, some of that mysticism. Uh, some other things that, that I see guys uh, make a mistake from, say they travel out here from the East Coast. And their timeline is, is automatically off and they wake up at, at two o'clock in the morning here when they're used to waking up at five back home. Well, they're bored. They don't, you know, I'm not up yet. You know, I just went to bed two hours ago. So they're, they're just sitting around and they might sling down two pots of coffee. So now their anxiety is way up there. They've got tremors in their hands and, uh, you know, they might be super, super awake and super alert, but when they come to full draw or to settle in to a rifle stock, um, that, that anxiety causes problems. And, and so does the shake in their hands. So you probably don't want to over caffeinate. That's another mistake that I see. So, um, yeah, just eating at the right times, eating the right things, I think is, is really important. And, and understanding that, that your schedule is going to shift dramatically compared to your normal day. And you need to shift your eating schedule with that. Uh, the, the other bad thing I'm going to say about coming back from a morning hunt and eating is it smokes you for the middle of the day. You get very, very tired after that meal. Um, you almost have to take a nap. And if you don't cut that nap off, I want to say at like minute 40, you're probably going to be groggy for, for the evening hunt and you're not going to be very alert and it can affect your mood as well. And your mood is a careful thing that you've, you've got to manage because if you do it wrong, then you can let things like doubt creep in a little bit more easily. If you're already in a bad mood versus if you're feeling more positive and optimistic. I think the, like something to remember, if you do have some sort of crazy early start time like that, you know, most people, cause I've seen it the same way, 
you know, guys will skip breakfast if they've got to get up at 3.30 and go somewhere. Breakfast doesn't need to be complicated. I mean, a PB&J can suffice as breakfast. It's going to give you the fuel that you need to get to the get to the turkey blind or wherever you're headed, sit there and, and pay attention and focus. I love the part that you said about even being potentially over caffeinated, that messing with your anxiety, because I'll never, one of the, one of the most, and this is, this is true. This is not me trying to, to puff you up here. One of the best podcasts that I personally remember was the one that you had with, um, it was a gentleman from the army who focused on, it was like sports psychology. It wasn't sports, but it was about, can you, do you remember that guy's name? Yeah. Dr. Ryan made man. That was such a good podcast. Do you know what the episode number was off the top of your head? Um, I don't, but if, if you search, uh, Ryan made in the six ranch podcast, you'll find it. It's, it's, it's made as in French made, which is the way that he first introduced himself to me. And I've never (laughs) forgotten it. I, um, and I'll link that I'll, I'll look it up and link it in the show notes, but the information that he gave in there was so good. And then he had recommended a couple of books, one of them being nerve, a book called nerve, which I searched high and low for found it at a used bookstore online out of like Massachusetts for $2. I don't even know. I don't even think the guy made the guy that wrote it, the author that wrote it. I don't even know if it's still being produced, but I'm into that book now. It's a great book. And that's a, giant side tangent because whenever you started talking about anxiety one of the things that he talks about is the anxiety that comes with shot placement and hunting right and wanting to do well but you're so filled with anxiety for so many different reasons it's hard to do well even if even if you can't so the psychology behind anxiety it was a great podcast and I'll, I'll be sure that i link it yeah and that's that's such a critical critical point in a hunt and i know it's not necessarily part of of this conversation here but I, I want to talk about it just briefly, if that's okay. Yeah, go ahead. Um, that pressure that you're feeling when you're about to take a shot, uh, the reason that you're feeling pressure isn't because the pressure's real, it's in your mind. And what's going on is that you have a fear of failure or a fear of loss. And then that's contrasted by a simultaneous pressure of the desire for gain. And if you don't recognize that and make peace with it ahead of time. Those, those two forces will pull at you and they'll tear you apart and they'll prevent you from going through a really basic sequence that you've practiced a whole bunch of times and are proficient at. So if you just go through your sequence and take the shot, everything's going to work out just fine. But if you allow those two, those two oppositional forces to pull at you, then they will tamper with your ability to go through this simple process of executing a shot. And I think it is a hundred percent relevant to this because it is so important to remember that in the context you're talking about, but even in the context of whatever a person's goals are for nutrition, it's relevant because I took, I took notes on that, which I don't always do. One of the things he said, he says, anxiety is related to outcomes. If we shift our focus from the outcome to what we put into our mind, he says much of the stress is from the desire for the gain or the fear of the loss of something. There's undue pressure versus just enjoying the process. And the reason it's relevant to this is because we people, we have such an expectation, typically unrealistic and tied to something unrealistic we've seen before of what our outcome should be in a journey with nutrition, whatever it is, weight loss, weight gain, improving your performance, hiking, whatever, 
that if we don't see that, we quit, right? If, if that expectation wasn't met, we lose the joy, we lose the focus of it, our anxiety increases, we're not making time efficient in terms of our journey, so we want to quit. And so I think it's, it's relevant in so many contexts, which is why I loved it so much. Everything he said was so applicable, no matter what the context was. So anyway, yes, I'll link that. That was a, I mean, that was a side tangent, but I loved it. <laughs> I mean, R Ryan's an incredible guy and he did amazing things while he was in the military. He's done amazing things as a professional sports psychologist for, for professional sports teams since leaving the military. And yeah, he, he's a guy that's, that's worth checking into for sure. Yeah, I'll be sure that I link that in there. So that's kind of half your life, right? Uh, you, you, the guide life, you're an ambassador for multiple different programs, you live in an incredible place. And then the other half, and I may not be identifying those 100% correct, but I think you know what I mean, is the ranch, right? And I'll be sure to link um, your guys's website on this show notes here, because it's cool. It's a cool website. It's very it's very easy to understand whenever you think about ranching because there's so much um so much information floating around there about like beef and sourcing and grass-fed versus grain all of these different things and you guys do a good job reviewing that can you talk a little bit about your ranch the history there the type of cattle you raise which i can't pronounce uh and then we'll we'll dive in a little bit deeper to what we were talking about with the grass versus grain fed yeah no absolutely the six ranch was founded in 1884 and it's in Wallowa County, Northeast Oregon. And there have been sheep, there have been hogs, there's been milk cows, uh, but there's always been cattle here. There's always been beef. Beef historically was not an easy thing to export because you either need to dry it or salt it or keep it cool. And cold, cold storage and cold shipment continues to be a struggle even today. Um, so the, the primary export products um, in earlier times were either live cattle or cream. Um, cream's a little bit easier to, to keep without keeping it cool for, for a time period, at least to get it out to, to a marketplace um, or, or live hogs or, or wool, um, wool from sheep. So today and for the last, gosh, 30 years at least, um, we've raised a, a breed of cattle cor called Coriannies. And that's C-O-R-R-I-E-N-T-E. Coriannies have an interesting history of their own. They were uh, originally from Africa and the Moors brought them to Spain. They're a really hardy breed that has a low dependence on water. They can travel great distances. They're the fastest breed of cow out there and they can survive well on a wide range of plant species, um, whether it's in a wet climate or a dry climate or a cold climate, they do really, really well. The, the Spaniards brought them to the Americas because of that low water requirement. So you're not gonna want some, some giant beef cow on a ship that has, has to drink you know, lots and lots of gallons of water every single day. Fresh water is a, a real commodity aboard a ship especially when you're sailing slowly across an ocean. Uh, the, the Spaniards uh, let them loose and they became a, a feral species. And they're actually still wild in the canyons of Northern Mexico today. They're primarily used in the United States for rodeo stock. 
So if you see them at a rodeo, they'll be in the bulldogging events or the team roping events, things like that. They look like, like a little version of a longhorn. Uh, we initially got them for rodeo. We ate them as beef at that time. And then, uh, then that just bled into them becoming our, our primary niche within the beef market. And as it turns out, they're a really healthy kind of protein. They're, they're very lean. The animals here, um, eat nothing, but what grows out of the ground on this ranch. And while we, we talk about grass fed because that's the term, it's actually more interesting than that. Cause these animals are eating woody debris. They're eating forbs, they're eating shrubs, they're eating grasses, and they're all native species. And there's a huge number of those species here. And I didn't really think about how that was affecting the complexity of the flavor of the beef and the health of the animal until we started getting sought out for people who wanted to bring their bees here because the honey that comes off the ranch is incredibly unique because the bees get to pollinate with this really wide range of native species. So I started, uh, started thinking about that a little bit more and I, I'm convinced that it affects the, the complexity of the flavor of the meat. So yeah, uh, it's a, it's a family operation. And now it's run by my little sister and her husband and her two little sons and me and my fiance and my mom and, and her boyfriend. And we all, we all work on it together and we all have different pieces of it that we specialize in. Uh, but there's a lot of jobs that are all hands on deck. And whenever one of those comes up, we're all there doing it. I'll throw in there that the reputation of the sixth ranch locally in Willowa County, because we have family there, it's where my wife's from, is great. Right. So, you know, it's well known there. And, you know, anytime, of course, like, you know, I we know each other. We've known talked to a few times over the years. And so when I've asked my mother in law and father in law and oh yeah, they've heard of it. And it's just a you guys have a little plot of gold it's so it is such a cool place to drive past and just see all of those cattle kind of roaming in Willowa County and the reputation there is awesome and from a grass-fed um, grain finished grain fed there's so much different nomenclature that I think the general public probably doesn't have a good idea of and even even when you start comparing like even when so the typical question that is asked with this and one that I'll get on a Friday a lot is is one healthier than the other? And it's a really complex question, right? So when you look at grass and grain, you'll see that the numbers may favor grass a little bit, um, but the degree to which it favors it is not so profound that we're talking about a dramatic change in someone's health until you start to get into a more complex conversation like you're talking about. I mean, your guys' cattle forage different things beyond just grass, and they're probably more active than your average large operation that most Americans are buying their beef from. And I think that that probably lends itself to a leaner end product than another grass-fed cattle that may be mass-produced and you may find in your local grocery store. Right. So there is there is tremendous value in finding a small operation like you guys and and investing in that as a, especially if especially if a family eats 
they don't have any luck on their tags. <laughs> if they eat quite a bit of red meat, buying it in bulk, packaging it and freezing it themselves, as opposed to, you know, I mean, good luck even trying to find some steaks sometimes. Second to that would be, you know, the cost compared to bulk is extremely high. And third, maybe the most valuable argument is you may find and in your case because like you sent me one of the things that sparked this conversation was you sent me an independent nutrient profile that you guys had done on your cattle and it was unquestionably more favorable in the lean side of things than the mass produced beef so you may find that this is more of what you're looking for as opposed to something that you find in the grocery store. So I think it's, you know, the, the question of is grass or grain fed, finished, et cetera, healthier. When you look at like really, really, really large studies, it fav grass is grass is favored some, but not so much that it changes your health until you start to look at something like a smaller operation, like you guys and a specific breed, one that's in, you know, a challenging environment to live in. So they're probably more active, which also lends itself to them being leaner. Um, but anyway, I will, if you guys are okay with it, I'll link in here as well. Um, a link to your guys's ranch. So if people are interested, they can check you out. Can they, do you have a way to ship beef? If somebody like say in Wisconsin is interested in buying it? Yeah. Uh, we can't, we can't guarantee overnight everywhere. We had a few, a few problems that we had to solve for people because when we started, we would just sell a whole or half or a quarter beef. And that was, that took a special customer because they didn't don't necessarily have cold storage themselves. They don't have, not everybody has a chest freezer. In fact, if we go into most homes, they have the freezer that's attached to their refrigerator. And, and that that's great. That that's a good, efficient use of your space. If you don't, if you don't have that space, and infrastructure available. So what we do now is we ship a, a small cooler of beef to our subscription members once a month, and it'll have an assortment of, of steaks and roasts and burger. And my mom usually throws some extra stuff in there. Like we just did some, uh, some freeze dried beef heart that we're going to be doing for pet snacks. Um, uh, my little sister, who's a formally trained chef will add some really cool recipes for, for what to do with this different stuff. We just try and make it a little bit easier on folks. And then there's a return label that comes with that cooler. They send it back to the ranch and then the next month we'll, we'll send them some new beef. Um, so that that's tends to work out really well for people. And we're, we're trying to make that as convenient as possible. Uh, but we've got maps on the website for all the areas that we can guarantee uh, overnight delivery to. And hopefully as, as groups like FedEx and UPS catch up after the, the blitz of logistics that they had to deal with during the pandemic, uh, that we're able to expand that map for them a little bit. And when you're, when you're talking about health, it's not just the health of yourself that you're investing in when you invest in, in a small small operation like the six ranch. And I encourage people to, to buy from ranches that are, that are close to them uh, shop locally. If you can not, I'm not trying to get you to, to buy my beef. I, I want you to buy this kind of beef. I want you to support this type of operation. But when you invest in a ranch like this, you're investing in the natural carbon sequestration that goes through a, a grass fed beef, beef operation. You're investing in, the river restoration projects that we've done on the ranch. Like we, 
We rebuilt two and a half miles of river for trout, salmon, and steelhead. We had returns of three different endangered species within six months of completing that project. So you're investing in, in the health of a place, you're investing in, in the health of the planet and, and the health of yourself, and you get a really good tasting product throughout all that. And I think that that's, that's what's really neat to me is, is all the, the layers of benefits that comes from this gargantuan amount of labor that goes into cattle ranching. I want to, um, I want to switch gears just a little bit. So I told you kind of earlier in the podcast that I had a surprise. I, I think you'll like, I hope you like it. We didn't talk about this at all, but, but on your Instagram, I think it's almost two years ago. Now you did a no food backpacking trip through Oregon. I don't want to assume or spoil anything. So can, if, if to the best of your memory, can you lay out kind of what your, what that looked like? Yeah, absolutely. That was a really neat thing. And I, I actually, I'm kicking around the idea of replicating that again this week on, on this bear hunt, which will be down in Hell's Canyon and some really rugged country. And I'm really considering not bringing food with me on that hunt. But what I did there is I felt like I needed to get into something that was, that was mentally and physically challenging. I hadn't tested myself in a really hard way for several years at that point. So I put in at the bottom of a river system on one side of the wilderness, and I brought a fishing rod with um, one fly and one lure. I brought a 22 pistol with 20 rounds of ammunition. I brought a sleeping bag. I brought some instant coffee and a titanium cup and a lighter and a tripod and a pair of binoculars so that I could look at stuff. And I, uh, I just started hiking. And one of the, one of the really neat things that happened right off the bat, like maybe a half a mile down the trail, I ran into my friend, uh, Eli Cairo, who owns Olympia provisions. And that's a, a, a big, um, meat operation in Portland. They make all kinds of really wonderful salamis and charcuterie and fermented meats. And everything is, is just wonderful. And Eli is a, is a really generous guy. And, you know, he sends me little meat treats all the time and he loves to give people food. And I told him what I was doing and he was like so torn because he wanted to like give me some salamis that he had in his backpack, but he also understood what I was doing. So that was kind of funny, but anyways, I, I went ahead and ended up hiking around 50 miles, uh, all the way through the wilderness. And, uh, hiked all the way up one river system and then all the way out another. And the only food that, uh, that I consumed was, was what I could either, you know, forage or catch. So I didn't find anything that I could shoot. I caught a couple fish and found some berries early on, but I wanted to add a lot of movement to this challenge. So I kept on hiking and I hiked myself back into winter. Um, just through elevation and there was no life up there besides me. So when I, when I finally went through the pass at the, at the summit of this wilderness, uh, I was over, I don't know, there's probably 25 feet of snow between me and the trail. So I couldn't tell where I should even be walking and ended up glissading down, trying to get to this lake that I'd guided at, uh, gosh, 20 years ago or so and it was full of fish at that time at this time there were none 
Uh, so I went to the next lake and all I found was a dead frog and ended up eating some, some very juvenile onions that were coming out of the side of the, uh, side of the lake there and found some miners lettuce and you know that stuff's not super satisfying uh and ate some of that and then i got lost on the way out a place that i knew very well i took the wrong trail and that was showing my my mental fatigue so i had to backtrack and and uh yeah i ended up hiking on out of the wilderness and it wasn't until the final miles of that that i found the the mental state that I was looking for. And the only way to get there was by exceeding what I thought my body was physically capable of. So once I got to that point, I was able to think very clearly about a lot of elements of my life. And I, I made some important decisions during that time and enacted on them. And my life is, is better for it. But yeah, that was, that was a really great experience. And it taught me a lot about, about myself, some things that I'd forgotten about myself. And, and I just can't encourage people enough to do something that they don't feel like they're capable of because they probably are. People are, are wonderfully capable organisms. You know, we're very, very tough. We can travel incredible distances with, without resources to support us. Um, but you've, you've got to prove that to yourself. And if you do, you'll find that you have capabilities in other fields of your life that, uh, that you didn't know about. And they're important. It's important to do this kind of stuff. James, if people were interested in checking you out, following along, maybe looking up that, um, the sticky to that, that experience that you had in the wilderness where you did 50 miles on no food, where can they find you at, or what would be some good spots for them to look for you? Well, my, my Instagram is six ranch outfitters. It's the number six. And if you go to my profile page there, there's a, there's a whole bunch of videos from that trip. We just talked about, you can also follow the six ranch podcast, which uh, I have a new episode that comes out every week. And then you can listen to a couple of shows on there with, uh, with my good friend, Kyle, and you'll get to hear more from him in the future because you're in good hands here. Kyle's a, great resource for knowledge and a really nice guy. Appreciate that, man. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. All right. So that's a wrap on that episode. Thanks for joining us this week. If you enjoyed this, like I said, please take a couple of seconds to like it, leave a comment, share it with a buddy or a friend. And there's other topics that you want to hear more about. Be more than happy to cover those. Just shoot us some ideas or questions over to info at v2pnutrition.com. We will be back again in a couple of weeks to look at something I've actually never covered, and it is how does protein play a role during endurance events? We've talked a ton about carbohydrates and the timing with those, but at what point do you need to start adding in foods with protein if you're hiking or training for a really long endurance event? So it might be a topic that's interested to you that will be launched either next week or the week after. Appreciate you joining us. Have a great week, everyone.